I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's podcast has been sponsored by Libro.fm Audiobooks. Libro, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from people like me who know books best and also from local booksellers. You can go on Libro.fm playlists and look at the Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books playlist and go from there. If you enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you'll, at checkout, you'll get three audiobooks for the price of one. So please check it out. Z-I-B-B-Y, three audiobooks for the price of one. I'm here today with Brenda Janowitz, who is the books correspondent for Pop Sugar and the author of six novels, including her latest, The Grace Kelly Dress. Her work has appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, Red Book, The New York Post, Publishers Weekly, and many other publications. A graduate of Cornell University and Hofstra Law School, Brenda worked as a lawyer and did a federal clerkship. She currently lives with her husband and sons on Long Island. Welcome, Brenda. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm super excited to discuss the Grace Kelly dress today, which, by the Thank way, I you. love this cover, and I have such dress envy of this dress. How <laughs> did you, how you, did so you even pick this cover and this image? Do you have anything to do with it? Well, I wish I could say I had something to do with it because I happen to love this cover, but alas, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's really the brilliant art team at Graydon House, and I think they did a phenomenal job. I had talked with my editor and my agent about covers that I was obsessed with, that I loved. I created a whole Pinterest page. Oh, cool. And yeah, one of the things we realized we really loved was when the title was really graphic and large, and so we knew we wanted that. But my editor pointed out, obviously, we need to see the dress. And since the Grace Kelly dress refers to Grace Kelly's iconic wedding gown, we knew we wanted some sort of a replica. Mm -hmm. So this is actually the second draft of the cover, second or third, but it's definitely the second dress. And I really encourage them to use more details from Grace Kelly's dress. And so we got the cummerbund in there and the, the buttons going down the back. So I think they did a phenomenal job. I'm really pleased with how it came out. Me too. <laughs> yeah, the first, the first draft was gorgeous also, though, I have, to, I have to say. So tell listeners what the Grace Kelly dress is about and then how you came up with this idea for this book. Yeah, so the Grace Kelly dress is about an heirloom wedding gown and three generations of women whose lives are sort of influenced by this dress and changed by the dress. And it takes place in three different timelines, which is something I've never done before. So in 2020, we see our modern bride, and she's sort of under pressure from her mom to wear this heirloom gown. And in 1982, we see the bride's mother, who's really excited about wearing the dress herself, and she's sort of gearing up to wear the dress. And sort of make it her own. And since it's 1982, you know that means Princess Diana sleeves, <laughs> of course. And then in a little twist, in 1958, we see the dress being made. And so we see the seamstress's life and what she's going through as she creates this dress. So it's really a look at an heirloom item and three generations of women and sort of how things have changed throughout time. And what gave you the idea for this plot? Yeah, so when I'm thinking about books, I'm always thinking about sort of what I'm obsessed with and what I can't stop thinking about. So for this book, when I sat down 
to come up with an idea, I had a little brainstorming session with my agent, and she said, what are you obsessed with? And since I've already written a book about weddings, we know I'm obsessed with weddings, (laughs) and I'm obsessed with clothes and fashion and most specifically wedding dresses. So my agent actually found this story on the Today Show about a wedding dress that had been passed down through eight generations. And we thought that was a great jumping off point for a story because I also love to do things with multiple generations. I love stories that are a woman, her mother, her grandmother, which I've done before. I think there's something so timeless about that idea, the different generations and how we change and how things for women have changed, etc. So I decided to work on this idea about a wedding dress. But as I was writing, in the back of my mind, I had Grace Kelly's iconic gown sort of in my mind, because to me, that's the ultimate wedding dress. So when I did a first draft of a few chapters, I remember it had a different title at first, Mm. but I was describing Grace Kelly's dress. So my agent said, before we finish this proposal, let's give it a different title. So I said, how about the Grace Kelly dress? And she said, that's great, but why Grace Kelly? And I was like shocked that she didn't know that I was describing Grace Kelly's gown. I was like, come on, the cummerbund, the buttons down the back, like you've got to know what dress this is. She was like, no, but I like it. And so we sort of leaned into that idea and it sort of took off from there. Wow. Yeah. So then when do you, how do you come up with the different characters? Like how do you, what's oh. your process like? Do you, like, do you sit down and brainstorm or were, are there inspirational pieces from people you know? Or like, how did you come up with these, especially these women? Yeah. So, you know, I had the idea about the wedding dress first and the multi-generational story. So then the question was, what kind of women would I be exploring? What kind of lives would I be exploring? So first I came up with the character of Rocky, who's our bride in 2020. And when I was coming up with Rocky, I was trying to do something a little different than I've done before. So our Rocky is a little tougher than characters I've sort of described before. She has a different kind of job. She owns a startup. She works in video games, like very different from me. I like to joke that all of my characters are a little bit of me because there's definitely an alternate reality where I have lots of tattoos (laughs) because I'm fascinated with tattoos, but I can't commit like Rocky has committed to all her tattoos. (laughs) So I don't have any, but in an alternate reality, I think I have a lot of tattoos. So there's a little of me in that, but there's also like a different version of me, if that makes sense. And then of course, you know, book six, it's a little less autobiographical than other books. Your first book they say is you. It's all about you. Every character is you, especially the main character. Once you're six books in, it's a little different. You're sort of doing different things, experimenting with different things and For this book, I was really concentrating on my through lines and how the three generations are different but the same. So I was trying to do something different. So the character sort of flowed from that, from the plot and what I was trying to say. But a lot of it is just sort of coming up with the idea and then walking around with these characters. And what I mean by that is when I come up with Rocky, I sort of think about her all day. So as I go to CVS that morning, how would Rocky react to this? And as I, you know, I'm waiting in line to pick my kids up from school and there's, you know, a log jam of the cars. Well, how would Rocky respond? What would she do? And that's, you sort of like live with the characters and that's how I develop them. I think character development is so important and that's one of the mistakes beginning writers make. They don't spend enough time on their character studies. And for me, just living my life as a character study, I just sort of bring the characters along with me. So that's sort of how they're created. The plot informs a lot of it. The themes of the book inform a lot of it. But a lot of it's just living with them and sort of moving around with them and figuring out what these characters would do. So everything sort of informs the other part. The characters inform the plot and the theme, and they hopefully all come together. (laughs) 
And what did your wedding dress look like? I have to ask. Ooh, so my wedding dress, like I mentioned, I'm obsessed with Grace Kelly's wedding gown. So, you know, I had that in mind when I was shopping and what year, for my when own. did you get married? I got married. Because that will give us a, a stylistic, <laughs> uh, you know, That is context, so true. Right? I love it. I got married in 2008. Okay. And one of the things, Grace Kelly's wedding gown had sleeves, and I desperately wanted sleeves. But in 2008, you could not get sleeves. Mm-hmm. They didn't. That was not a thing. <laughs> And I find it so funny because now it feels like designers are all saying, oh, people want sleeves. And I'm like, this is not, this is not new. People have always wanted sleeves. <laughs> but in 2008, no sleeves. So my dress was strapless, but I had a little bolero made. So it covered my shoulders for the service portion. But it was strapless. The bodice was lace. And in a little nod to Grace Kelly, I had a very delicate ribbon around the waist, not a cummerbund, but sort of a nod to that. And it had buttons down the back. Oh, that's <laughs> so, so pretty. So when I say I'm obsessed, I really mean it. I, I absolutely love her dress. I think it's so timeless. There have been so many dresses that have been influenced by it. And it's amazing to me that a dress from so long ago, from 1956, can be so relevant today. What did you think of the Kate Middleton dress? Oh, I loved it. I thought it was spectacular. I loved it. But the truth is, I'm just a sucker for wedding dresses. There are so few that I don't like. I really love wedding dresses. There's something there's something about that period of your life. And so even though I'm married 11 years now, it still makes me happy to think about wedding dresses. You know, there's something so joyful about it. I've been buying and reading bridal magazines my whole life. <laughs> like, I'm like it. the only non-bride, I feel like, who occasionally, you know, wants to read. And I used to, I wrote I for it. Modern Bride for a little while. I was like, oh, wow. I'm like, I'm also, like you, I'm obsessed with wedding gowns. And luckily I've had two, so. See? Yeah, I got to do it over again. <laughs> you know, I was joking Kirk with. Kirk divorce and remarriage. There you go. <laughs> I love it. So towards the end of the book, Joni asks, who's the middle generation woman yeah. in the book, asks her mother, Will this be the biggest mistake of my life, the thing that defines me? And her mother answers this question by saying, there's no such thing as the biggest mistake. There's only what you do and what you don't do. So I was just wondering, is this your general philosophy on decision-making? And Because I thought that was a great like rule to live by. Thank you. I wish I could say that's how I live my life. I would say that's how I try to live my life. I wish I lived my life a little more like that. I take things very seriously and I'm very hard on myself. And every New Year's resolution is to sort of not be hard on myself and sort of take things a little more easy. And I do think in terms of big decisions, I do take them very seriously and I think it's the be all end all. Like for example, I was a lawyer, I don't practice anymore. I decided to you know, give the writing thing a try. These big decisions do feel like life or death. But as I get older, I think what I'm realizing, nothing's really life or death because you can sort of come back from anything and times change and that's okay. So part of me, like the little girl me, still feels like everything is the biggest decision of your life and this will be the thing that marks your life. And certainly there are things that do mark your life, like seriously traumatic events do mark your life. And they say some of these traumas, you stay that age forever. So, I mean, I think there are some things, but in terms of decisions like career, who you're going to marry, I I don't think that those are necessarily the biggest mistakes of your life. I think you learn from every experience and I try to just take things a little less seriously. So I think that Joni's mother was a little wiser than I (laughs) And I think that's something I try to live by just to sort of make the day-to-day easier. 
which is not to say big decisions are not a big deal. It was obviously a big deal to leave the practice of law. It's a big deal to figure out who you're going to marry. But I think part of why I was single for such a long time was that I just put so much weight into it. And to some extent, things are a leap of faith and you need to sort of go with them. And tell me a little bit about your decision to leave law. I know you were a lawyer, clerkship, like the whole nine yards. What what happened? Well, you know, my whole life I wanted to be a lawyer, but it was because I loved to read and I loved to write. I was one of those children. You couldn't take a book out of my hand. I was always writing essays. When I was in law school, I tried to write a book. I, I was always just sort of thinking in terms of story. I think story and the stories we tell are really important. But you know, when you're a Jewish girl from Long Island and you say to your parents, I'm going to be a writer, they're like, that's nice. If you like to read and write, become a lawyer. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you need a job. So my parents were always big on, you need to be able to support yourself. You need a job. You can't just wait for someone else. So I went to law school straight out of college and became a lawyer, worked at a big firm. The hours just killed me and just sort of the lifestyle was difficult. So I clerked, but it turns out when you work for a judge in New York, they work really tough hours also with <laughs> the caseloads out of control. So I tried to make being a lawyer work, but I was really just one of those really unhappy lawyers. And around my 30th birthday, I remember my best friend from college, Sean, said, you know, enough of this saying you're going to write a book. Now you're actually going to do it. So she got my friends together. They sent me to a writing class. Gotham Writers Workshop. And every Tuesday night, I went to this writing class and I actually took writing seriously. And I said, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. And that's where I started working on my first novel. And at the time, I remember I said, okay, I'm just going to do this for fun. It's just going to be one of those life accomplishments. Like someone had said to me, finishing a book is an accomplishment just in of itself. So I like that. I said, okay, I'm just going to finish this book. So I did it. But then, you know, being a type A person, once I finished it, I was like, I should now get this published. (laughs) So I went, I got an agent and sort of the rest is history from there. And I've been writing, I guess my first novel came out in 2007, two weeks after I met my husband. And (laughs) I've been writing ever since. That's amazing. Yeah. So does it get easier the more the, you know, does each subsequent book get easier or is it the same? I wish I could say yes, but no, it feels like every book is starting over again. It feels like each book should be easier because they all build on each other, right? Every novel you've sort of like learned so much. So you come from a different place. So it feels like it should be easier, but it's not. Every time it feels like you're at the base of a mountain once again. And sometimes I come to a book and I'm sort of thinking like, I have no idea how to do this. Even though you've done it before, it feels like you don't know how to do it. You've never done it before and you'll never do it again. Of course you do, but it sort of feels that way, you know, so it doesn't get easier. Parts of it get easier. Like I would say the promotion and marketing, that stuff, you learn more. So that part gets a little easier only because you know what's coming and you know the right questions to ask. You know, my first book, I was like, oh, we have to do an event. We have to have a party. We have to do this. Now, you know, I'm a married woman, two kids. I live a dramatically different life than when my first book came out. And what's important is different. And how I sort of play the publishing game is a little different. So does that mean no party this time? Oh, there's definitely a party. There's definitely a party. But it'll be a smaller party. Right. (laughs) You know, I think with this book, what I'm trying to do is just enjoy it a little more. Mm -hmm. You know, I was on the phone with my mother the other day. And I said, we were talking about 
something about the book process. And I said something to the effect of, you know, but all my friends have books out (laughs) because at this point I know a lot of novelists. And she was like, whoa, 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 hold up, back up. Not everyone writes a book and gets it published. She's like, you're living in this little bubble, but you need to appreciate the accomplishment. So I think this time around, I'm going to try to have more fun with it and appreciate it and enjoy it a little more. Because not everyone writes a book, even though sometimes it feels like it. It's true. Yeah. yeah. No, you should feel good about it. I mean, it's a great book. Thank I mean, you. Even if it was your only book. I mean, seriously. <laughs> Thank you. Do you think, and I, I read this essay you wrote, I think in Red Book, about having two sons and yes. how you had wanted a daughter, but then you oh. gave birth at 31 weeks and yes. you're stopped caring about the gender and just wanted, you know, you just like were rooting for the sur- yeah. survival and the trauma. And I'm making light of this, which I shouldn't, but you know. No, you can make light of no, it because so, he's eight years old now. No, okay. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, a lot of people have have been through very scary processes with having kids like you. And then you were still saying, like, but you love all the dress stuff and, like, what you're saying to the fashion. Do Do you feel like, in a way, being able to write about girls all the time, like, feeds, you know, scratches that itch, so to speak? Like, I love that question because, yeah, I think it does. You know, I always thought I would have two girls. I'm such a girly girl. I just sort of took it for granted. Of course, I would have daughters. So now I have two sons. And like you mentioned, my second son was 31 weeks and it was very touch and go. He's eight years old and he's perfectly fine now. So it's okay to make a little light of it, but I get what you're saying. You know what? It's funny when I think about it. I think about how everyone just makes it like it's no big deal to have babies. And it's so incredibly hard. (laughs) And it's so incredibly hard to give birth. And all these things are just so tough, but everyone does it. So we're just sort of like, oh, whatever. (laughs) He's fine now. But yeah, it was traumatic. It put things in perspective for me because it made me realize the most important thing is, I mean, it's so cliche, but it's true. The most important thing is that your kids are healthy, right? So it put things in perspective. But yeah, I get to write books about wedding dresses. So it definitely sort of scratches that itch for me. You know, I got to research wedding dresses and gown construction. And at one point I was speaking to a wedding dress designer about just different details about how a dress comes together. And I did a lot of research in terms of Grace Kelly's dress, that actual dress itself. And that was so much fun and so fascinating. So yeah, I definitely get something out of that. But I also have two nieces, so that helps Mm -hmm. too. And I wanted to talk about your recent Modern Love essay, which was so exciting. I was Thank like you. so cheering for you for the sidelines. because you. you were and, uh, Anyway, it was fantastic. And <laughs> let me get the title right. He's never going to put away that shirt right. about your husband <laughs> and how he left the shirt like on the console table in your upstairs hallway and like that yes. you walked by it a zillion times and yes. he never picked it up and you just never. decided to make it like a standoff. Like, I'm just going to wait and see. Will he ever pick it up? Yeah, so, you know. So, wait, I want to know. First of all, that's hilarious. Second of all, what made you think this would be right for modern love? Like, how did you know this was a modern love piece? Like, Oh, well, that's a very simple answer. Okay. So when this was happening, first, in my defense, I thought he would put it away in like a week and we'd have a laugh over it. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize he'd leave it out quite so long, almost a year. I mean, <laughs> I thought it would just be like a few days and eventually he would see it because where this table was, as you exited our bedroom, mm-hmm. it was sort of like in your way. There was no way you couldn't see the shirt. So it amazed me that he never noticed it was there and thought maybe I should put this back in my closet. But anyway, so it became sort of like a story that I constantly told people. So I'd go out for lunch with friends and they'd complain about their husband. I'd say, oh, well, did I tell you about the shirt? And, 
you know, it became a running thing with friends. It was to the point, one of my girlfriends, when I would meet her for lunch, she'd say, you know, how's Doug? How are the kids? How's the shirt? He was like, the shirt became like a person in my life. So I was always telling people, it became this story I was constantly telling friends. So I was having coffee with the novelist, Laura Dave, and you know, at the point I told her the story, the shirt might have been put away. I don't even remember because I'd been telling the story for so long. So she started telling me something about married life and she had a baby. And we were just sort of talking about how life changes because I've known her since before we were both married and had kids. And we were just talking about how your life dramatically changes. And I said, well, did I tell you about the shirt? So I tell her the whole story and she looks me dead in the eye and says, that's your modern love. And I was like, Lord, no, you're crazy. But when Laura Dave gives you writing advice, you should listen because she's amazing. So, you know, I went home from that coffee date and I sort of thought about it and I started writing it. And it just, it seemed so silly to me. And it was also sort of embarrassing that I had sort of done this and let it sit out for so long and I was so resentful. But Susan Shapiro, who teaches this awesome... Yeah, she was on my podcast. She's amazing. She teaches this amazing class on nonfiction. She always says, your first thing, it has to be a humiliation essay, to which I say all of my essays are humiliation (laughs) essays. But this one in particular is humiliating to me because I was sort of so petty about it. But the more I sort of worked on this essay, I said, oh, wait, I think I have something here. And of course, Laura telling you to do something, it means you should do it. So... I worked on this essay, but then it sat on my desktop for a while. Then I was at a book expo party last spring, and I got to meet Elizabeth Gilbert. And I told her that fiction was my thing. I wasn't really as good at nonfiction. And she said, that's ridiculous. Of course you can do both. And after that, I finished editing the piece. I submitted it, and it was accepted. So, So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. So I can't take the credit. It's really Laura's credit because I didn't think it was a modern love piece. I thought it was a funny story. And she sort of put the idea in my head, and I ran with it. That's awesome. I love that. So books correspondent for Pop Sugar. You come up with these lists every season. 22 books, 36 books. How do you? books. It's a lot of books. (laughs) And... How do you pick them? People are always asking, how do you pick the books for your podcast? Like, how do you pick the books? Gosh, it's really hard, isn't it? You know, when I first started the list, I, at that point, it was before the dinner party came out and I was trying to get more bylines. So uh, my friend, Alyssa Friedland, who I think has also been on your podcast, she had published something with Pop Sugar and I was on the phone with her and she said, anything I can do for you ever, let me know. And I said, oh, I'm dying for a byline at Pop Sugar. Could you introduce me to your editor? So she's so lovely. Of course, she immediately emailed both of us. And I did, I think it was like a 90s nostalgia piece. So I was really excited to have the byline. It was like a fun, silly piece. A few weeks later, the editor wrote to me and she said, why don't, you know, you're an author. Why don't you do a list of the books you're most looking forward to this summer? So I said, oh, I could do that with my eyes closed because I'm looking forward to so much. The summer season's always so rich. I put that list together. And in like, I remember it was like, I put it together so quickly because there were so many things I was dying to read. And it got shared so many times that she came back. She's like, let's do it again. And so it just sort of went from there. At a certain point, publicists started sending me books in galley form. So the list then became sort of my favorite books. I would read a ton of books and then sort of organize them. Now I'm getting 10 to 20 books a day on my doorstep And it's really hard to figure out what to pick. So the list has sort of morphed yet again. 
because I feel a responsibility to have a really diverse group of books. So I try to have well-established authors on there, debut authors on there. I feel like there's a responsibility to have the books that everyone wants to read. There's always books that are really buzzy. I think people expect to see those, but they also like to see diamonds in the rough. So I'm trying to find debut novelists or novelists maybe no one's really read before who haven't gotten their due. Then diversity in terms of the types of authors, the types of stories that are being told. So I try to have a mix of everything. It's very heavily women's fiction, but I try to put a little memoir, a little young adult. I figure most people aren't going to read 30 books over the summer. They'll sort of cherry pick from my list. So I try to make it that they can cherry pick a few different types. It's not all the same thing. But, you know, it's challenging. Each time it's really challenging. Wow. Yeah. So cool. <laughs> it's hard. It's it's hard. And so then do you put your own, can you like slide in your own book onto the list? Yes. Do you do that? that? I do. Oh, that, was, that was one of the first <laughs> things I asked my editor. I said, oh, this is so uncomfortable, but I have a book coming out. Do you think I could put it on the list? She said, of course you should put it on the list. So I do. And it's, it's always kind of funny because it's now, it's the best books of summer, the best books of spring. So I'm working on the best books of spring and I have a feeling the Grace Kelly dress will be on there. <laughs> It's kind of funny, but yeah, it's about, it would be dishonest to not include my book. Of course you have to do it. I mean, (laughs) for all the shameless self-promotion authors are required to do to market their books. This is like the least of it. Of course you have to put it on. You know, it's so funny you mentioned that because I just did a post on Instagram this morning as I was about to walk in to meet you about the shameless self-promotion because I'm two months out from the book coming out. And this is the time where most authors do a post and they say, okay, I'm sorry. I have to talk about myself. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. You can you can mute me if you want. And I said, this time around, I'm not going to do that because, you know, I've been writing professionally since 2007 and somehow it became 2020. <laughs> so that's a really long time. I just... I don't want to apologize anymore for what I do and what is sort of required of me. Part of the job is the self-promotion and sort of putting yourself out there. And it always makes me laugh when friends say, oh, were you in my hometown and you did have met? How come I didn't know about it? So, I mean, to some extent, you do need to get the word out. You do need to let people know. But also, it's part of why you're out there, right? I mean, I wrote a book. I'm proud of it. So I'm going to try to apologize a little less this time around and just sort of say, this is this is what I did. And that's okay. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Also, I'm going to try. <laughs> well, I think it makes it actually, I don't know. I, I As a reader of someone saying, I'm sorry for this, like, Have I don't know. Have you seen those posts? Oh, I've seen a ton yeah. of those posts. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, here I go, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, right. shameless flag, whatever. And sometimes I say right. that. Right. I don't know. Yeah. But I feel like I'm much more energized by reading posts about somebody saying like, Look at my book in this yeah. window. How cool is this? Because right. then you're rooting for them, right? Oh, I love that. Don't you? I mean, I feel like, yeah. I'm like, that's so cool. Or like, yeah. now like, let me follow, like, I like to follow in people's sort of success in their journeys. Like, yeah. I think that's what Instagram is good at and people's mailing lists and all the rest of it. Right. You know, like. I agree with that. See where they go. Like, I don't know. If, it, if it's. So true. I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling. But I feel like no, if it's a necessary evil, like. It is. It is because people want that content. They, they want that. So just like put it out there. I love it. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, you're expected from your publisher to yeah, do yeah. all of these things, yeah. right? To some extent, they put out so many books. They need you to be a partner in it and to really push 
yeah. your book and yourself and your platform. Maybe I have to take back what I just said because a lot. Well, no, a lot of, no, because a lot of people are very shy and it doesn't come naturally. And I know. So they don't. They really begrudge having to do that because yeah, just because you're writing a book doesn't mean you necessarily want to be a public figure at all. I mean, think about That's all the point. writers in the past, right? In yes. the olden days, like yes, like JD Sound, like he's never oh. come out, like whatever. You know what I mean? Like That's such a good point. So. Anyway. <laughs> right. No, I like that. But it's a, it's a, obviously a struggle. Yeah. Luckily I'm not shy. Right. <laughs> but you know what? I am humble. And so it is hard to sort of be like, read this. This is amazing. Like that's like, it's always tricky when I have to write up my own book for pop sugar and say nice things about it. Well, like that's a uniquely of, bizarre thing. Right. That's a tricky yeah. thing. But even when you meet people, you know, I was speaking to someone last night and I was telling her about the book and she said, that sounds incredible. And I was like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> you know, there's always, you always feel like you have to be like, I don't know. It's, yeah. That's true. It was like that thing people were talking about this a year or two ago when women would post their essays on social media. They would say, I wrote a thing. Instead of just saying, you know, I wrote this essay about X, Y, Z, they would sort of downplay it by saying, I wrote a thing, quote unquote, a thing, like it's not important. So when My Modern Love came out, I was really careful not to do that. And I was really careful to just be honest and be like, I'm humbled and thrilled. And this is something I've been trying to get for years. And you know, just sort of be on, more honest about it and not do that fake, like, I wrote a thing. <laughs> Even though I did write a thing, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so what are you working on now? Anything? Another book? <sighs> yeah, you know, the that tricky seems- thing is, it's funny, when you start promoting your book, that means it's completely done. Mm-hmm. And so if you didn't work on the next thing, you'd get into a lot of trouble. So I am working on my next book, which is really exciting. And it's funny, you know, you talk about the Grace Kelly dress, but my head is sort of in this other world with these other characters who I'm developing. So I like the idea from the Grace Kelly dress of working, of sort of talking about an heirloom item. Because even though I think people are important, not things, we still do attach meaning to certain things like a wedding dress. Like, you know, today I'm wearing my grandmother's ring. It's really important to me because it belonged to my grandmother. It's also so, very cool. It's like a, a star yes. with a hole in the middle. <laughs> it's very, I mean, it's super cool. She was very fashion yeah. forward, my grandmother. Very cool. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny. I always tell my kids, People are important, not things. Things can be replaced. But when it comes to these heirlooms, there is something special about them, and there is something that feels irreplaceable about them. So I'm writing about another heirloom item and another family, although I will say I'm not doing the historical timelines because there was so much research involved. (laughs) I give so much credit to all the people that I know who write historical fiction. It felt like every sentence needed to be researched. When I was working in 1982, I wanted a character to wear a swatch watch, and then I thought to myself, oh, wait, when did those come out? But no, they came out in like 85, 86. So there was no swatch watch. The person just checked a plain old regular watch. So I felt like every sentence needed to be researched. I needed to research the way people spoke, get their cadence of speech. And that took a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot, I like to sort of just write by the seat of my pants and sort of see where it goes. So I'm doing more of a contemporary story this time, but there will be an heirloom item at its center. Excellent. Yeah. Exciting. Thanks for asking. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Gosh, I have so much advice. (laughs) But I think I'll start with what I think what I've learned most after writing six books is that writing is rewriting. And that's the God's honest truth. I mean, they I, I know it's like a basic sort of tenet of writing, but it feels more true to me now because with the Grace Kelly dress, I edited this book more than I edited any other book. And I think that this book is my best book by far because of that. So there were the 1982 storyline. At one point, I tore it out completely, ripped it apart, and rewrote it. I'd say only 
like 20% of the original 1982 storyline remains in what you read now. So I did a ton of rewriting and really thinking about the story. And, you know, when you're a writer, you always feel like, oh, no, I wrote that. I can't delete it. And so I used to keep a document with deleted scenes. And I would say to myself, it's okay, you can delete it because you can always go back to it. But this time, I just sort of deleted even more. I sort of edited with abandon because it's always better the second time around because you know the characters better, you know your message better, you know what you're trying to say. So I'm much more free with editing and deleting. I also try to write a little rougher now, knowing that half of it's going to be gone anyway. So I try to sort of write a little more freely, knowing that everything will be fixed later, and it's okay to just tear out full chapters at a time. I think when you first start out, it's hard to do that. It feels like, you know, that empty page is so tough and it feels like you'll never fill it. So once you've filled it, it's hard to get rid of it, uh, you know, get rid of that progress. But it's really important to do that. Even with my essays, that's actually one of the greatest things I learned from Sue Shapiro's class. Sometimes you would write an essay and she would say, oh, no, that's not what it's about. This is what it's about. And you'd have to sort of start from scratch. And there was something so, but that's only a thousand words, right? But there's something so refreshing about that. You just start fresh and you are clearer. So the next essay is so much better because of that. With a book, it's harder. That's 300 pages. <laughs> you know, a thousand words, okay, maybe you can sort of cut it out. 300 pages is tough. And sometimes you're cutting, you know, huge, huge parts and it hurts. But I think that's the most important thing. That's the, that's the process. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it as we speak and it's rough. It's rough. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms No Time to Read Books. Thanks thank you for, for having me. All of your amazing books and <laughs> recommending so many books and being, <sighs> you know. Thank you. Giving me ideas and so many other people <laughs> of which books are good to read and all the rest of it. So um, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This is incredible. Oh, no. Of course. <laughs> You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks to Libro FM for sponsoring today's episode. Remember to go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M to get your next audiobook, support a local bookseller, and enter code Zibby for three audiobooks for the price of one. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.